he did more than, than we could have done to unify NATO over the last 75 years. It is the week of April 18th, and welcome to episode 128 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today, we have Carmen Medina, NSI advisory board member and former deputy director of intelligence at the Central Intelligence Agency. Scott Kulinane, visiting fellow at NSI and executive director of the U.S.-Europe Alliance. Andy Kaiser, senior fellow at NSI and principal at Navigators Global and myself, Lester Munson, a senior fellow at NSI and the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So over the past few days, there's been a lot of discussion about weapons of mass destruction possibly being used in Ukraine. It was a rumor of chemical weapons perhaps being used by Russians uh, in, in southern Ukraine. More, perhaps more of concern, there's been a lot of talk about the use of nuclear weapons, discussion of whether Russian nuclear bombers are flying too close to Ukraine, uh, the possibility that a nuclear device was on the Moskva when it sank in the Black Sea after it was sh- shot by Ukrainians. A lot of these are rumors, but it does bring up the very legitimate possibility that Russia may use uh, weapons of mass destruction. And to that point, uh, CIA Director Bill Burns mentioned the use of nuclear weapons as a real possibility last week. Carmen, I want to go to you first. What, what does it mean when the director of our most storied intelligence service is bringing up the possibility that there could be a nuclear attack in Ukraine? Well, I think it means a lot. And what's important about that is not that he Well, I mean, it is important that he's the leader of the CIA, but I think what's significant is that he served as ambassador to Russia for, I don't know, three years during the Bush administration. He speaks apparently fluent Russian. And in that big WikiLeak vomit of classified cables that came out 15 years ago, there was one from him where he was very clear in noting that for Putin, Ukraine is a red line and there is no issue more sacred to Putin, more important to Putin than Ukraine. And within the last two weeks, Burns gave a public talk to Georgia Tech, and it's available on YouTube. And he makes comments about Putin where he says, implies or says outright that for Putin, Ukraine is an emotional, spiritual issue. So I think it's really significant when Burns says that it's not outside the realm of possibility because he may know Putin better than any other senior uh, official in the U.S. government. And that, by the way, if I can circle back, you asked me a few shows ago whether it was significant that Burns was traveling to all these embassies carrying the administrations of water, all these countries on the Ukraine. And clearly, I think now, in retrospect, having been reminded of his Russian background, it was because he was probably the most knowledgeable and a credible person on Putin's intentions that the administration could send forward. Fantastic. Andy, what's your reaction to this discussion of nuclear weapons? How, for example, if the Russians actually used, a, let us say, a very low yield tactical nuke in Ukraine, how does that change the calculus for the United States and NATO taking a direct role in Ukraine? Yeah, I think that is something of an unknown, uh, which is probably why we're in this gray area, probably all of us, including uh, the Russian uh, government and senior defense intelligence leaders there, uh, including Vladimir Putin himself. It's it's unclear exactly how uh, the West would respond. Uh, We haven't laid out a red line, uh, frankly, like we did in in Syria, uh, which of course was 
was not, um, we didn't hold to that uh, red line that was drawn. The Russians, of course, very much involved in that attack uh, in Syria. Uh, if, if we all remember, they were supposed to uh, get rid of all of Syria's uh, chemical weapons, which obviously didn't happen very well because they uh, continued to be used by the Assad regime in, in a brutal fashion. So certainly they are not to be trusted. Uh, frankly, anything I hear the Russians say, particularly during wartime, I'm predisposed to believe the exact opposite is true. And so, you know, is it a, is it a bluff? You know, has any kind of strategic decision been made? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I do happen to believe, and I'm, not, I'm interested in if the others do, that the situation is so dire for the Russians and that they're, um, particularly Putin's fear of, uh, you know, of, of failing tragically in something that, you know, most of the world, including his own military, likely and intelligence services thought would be a fairly easy operation to topple the, the government in Kiev. Clearly, has, has that part has failed. I do believe he wanted to topple the government in Kiev, but probably the, the primary objective was to control the, the eastern regions of Ukraine, Donbass, and create the land bridge to Crimea, which is, you know, very much still within the realm of possibility. So, you know, all of, all of that is, is, is happening, and I don't put it past them to, to do something like that because, it, you know, it would sort of change the calculation on the ground. It certainly would make the Ukrainians, uh, you know, obviously horrified, the world horrified. Um, how they would react, I think, is unclear. How we would react, uh, I think, is unclear, but I wouldn't put it past them. Uh, I don't trust anything Vladimir Putin says or any of the Russians, particularly in, in wartime. Um, and it's, you know, it's a very concerning situation. I think even the chemical or biological attack, I mean, the Russians are the only ones other than the Syrians in the last generation to have used these weapons. Russia obviously used a biological weapon uh, against uh, a dissident in on foreign soil in the United Kingdom, they were so blatant. So I wouldn't put it past them. Uh, it is highly, highly concerning. And frankly, I'm, I'm just not sure how the West would react. I like to think that would be a red line to galvanize action, but I'm, I'm not convinced it would be. But I'm curious of the others' reactions. Scott, I, I'd love to hear your take on it, um, both from your previous position as a house staffer you know what do what do american politicians think of this but also what do our european allies think of this possibility are they do they think that this would be a red line that if russia crosses it uh the u.s would the u.s and the west would have to take a more direct role i think like andy said uh the question of it being a red line is something that i think honestly we don't know about you know and that that it's probably something that we're not going to have a good answer until until we face that situation. Um, what I've been seeing so far, what I've been thinking about this is, at least to this point, I don't think there's been a military necessity for for Russia to use these weapons. And the threat to use these weapons, and if and when we do come to Russia employing a tactical nuclear weapon, for example, this would be fundamentally a political act. And it's designed uh, to scare the West, to scare the U.S., to scare Europe, and to scare the Ukrainians. And so I think we have to uh, understand it in that, in that political context. It's really uh, the discussion around this that the Kremlin is trying to expand and to engender is really about fear, uh, about, about creating fear in the West and trying 
um, to push to push the West around in 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 our moment of fear and not thinking clearly or in a panic and to try and find um, some some leverage um, in that space. And it's actually um, a point where I think the Kremlin uh, is going to have some diminishing returns. And, you know, we, we've had this, this threat of, of, of at least a heightened status of nuclear readiness um, within Russia since the very beginning of the outbreak of the war in late February and, and increased threats of, of, of uh, nuclear weapons in the Baltics, whatever that means, if Finland, Sweden uh, move to join NATO. And, and the more Russia threatens this, um, you know, in some ways, I think the more uh, Europe and the West return back to our roots uh, with the Cold War, we begin to prepare for it. We become mentally ready for it. We um, accept certain risks and, and the fear uh, which Putin thinks these threats create um, you know, eventually, eventually dissipates and you can't quite achieve the same kind of reaction. And, and where that leads Russia, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if then they have to escalate further to try and achieve that same level of, of fear. But fundamentally, I think the, the important point here is that these weapons, at least in the current situation, would be used for political reasons and not necessarily because uh, military or battlefield conditions demand them. Carmen, I think what Scott is describing is known as the Overton window moving. That is the the uh, range of acceptable policy responses to a situation moves over time as the situation right. develops and people right. think of things as perhaps more acceptable. As someone who has advised policymakers, do you factor in a moving Overton window, like perhaps an increased acceptance of the possibility of Western involvement in direct Western military involvement in Ukraine if certain thresholds are crossed in the weapons of mass destruction category by the Russians. Is this something that our national security community has to be aware of and build into what it is discussing with, with policymakers? Yes. And I would be very disappointed if there are not have already occurred several meetings where the discussion has been, what do we do when and if and when there is a uh, Russian use of nuclear weapons? I, I actually don't think there's any value in declaring a red line, although, you know, President Biden could sort of randomly declare a red line because I think actually for interesting tactical person uh, purposes, he's been loose in his talk about Russia. And I, I, I don't think he's been loose accidentally, actually. But I would think that we have a target deck ready. I would think that we have thought through, as in target deck, as in what are our option deck, what are our responses? And I think some of those have to include targets. And I believe that, you know, if the Russians used a nuclear weapon, which would be of any type, which be the third time in U.S. in world history that a nuclear weapon has been used, I believe that the Majority of U.S. officials will believe that this requires an escalatory response from the U.S. I don't think Putin will do this before the Russian election. I mean, sorry, the French election. Uh, and I also think how it will play in China is an important part of Putin's calculation. I just I just can't think that China would think this is a good idea. Andy, Scott, I'm, I'm interested in your reaction to what's this hypothetical uh, 
something happens in Ukraine uh, in the weapons of mass destruction category, President Biden decides he wants to get the U.S. more involved, uh, perhaps directly involved. And he asks Congress for an authorization for the use of military force. Does it pass Congress? You know, for a good podcast, uh, us saying we don't know is, is never uh, particularly <laughs> interesting. Uh, but I, I do think it really depends on the hypothetical you're, you're describing, right? So if, if there was some kind of tactical nuke used, um, again, I very much like to think that at least gets to a humanitarian zone protected by a no-fly zone so that you could arm and supply and train the Ukrainians in a more sophisticated way uh, to help bring success to change the situation on the battlefield. You know, something short of that, I'm not sure. You know, of course, he doesn't actually probably need uh, authorization for military force. I I, I still, even in that scenario, I don't see the 101st Airborne marching across from Poland or Romania. Maybe I'm wrong. you know, again, I, I think particularly this administration would be very keen to ensure any operation had a NATO face uh, and not a U.S. only face, which is probably the, the right call. But I think you're looking more at that sort of limited involvement. You know, uh, I think some commentators loosely in, in the beginning threw around no fly zone. Um, that's a very serious, you know, it's an act of war. Uh, you would have to take out anti-air uh, systems inside of Russia. Uh, they're not going to like that too much. Um, and so I think that would, if there was a more direct U.S. military engagement, I think it would be limited to that type of uh, realm. Scott? I think for the scenario you laid out where there's a significant use of WMD, a tactical nuke, I think Congress would feel compelled to pass an AUMF. And I, I, of some form, I think a, a people of legislation with, with that acronym on it would pass and pass quickly. Um, but the other thing I, I would, I would say hearing, um, agreeing with both Andy and Carmen, um, is I think, uh, that would be you, perhaps something I'd even say a mistake. I think Putin would very much like to draw the U.S., um, into the war. And I actually think at the moment, the U.S. involvement um, is, is effective. Uh, we're giving the Ukrainian uh, weapons, which are uh, decimating uh, the Russian military. Um, and and I, I think we're actually in a pretty good posture. And it only benefits Putin at this point to lay out a hard red line, which would be an invitation for him to cross it. Um, and in having a more direct American or NATO involvement um, in Ukraine um, just gives him the, the pretext for increased domestic mobilization um, and to fight the kind of war that the Russian military has probably trained to fight. And that's a fight against NATO in the West. Um, the, the war they're fighting right now uh, against a Ukrainian army slash possible insurgency in some cases um, supplied from safe areas with, uh, you know, uh, very reliable supply lines into safe territory. Uh, that's a no-win scenario for the Russian military. Um, and so I think, uh, I think it's to our advantage to actually keep the situation as it is. It plays to our advantages and to our strong suits right now as it is. Um, having a red line or, or even some sort of half measure of a humanitarian 
operation or something, anything like that, I, I think sacrifices um, some pretty big advantages we have right now and gives um, political and operational leverage uh, and more escalatory advantage um, to Putin. So politically, there'll be a huge temptation to do something like that. But, um, but thinking through the implications, I think it would actually be somewhat of a mistake um, if we just followed sort of the, the political pressure of the moment and the demand to do something. It might be more of a remote, emotional action um, than, than rather than a fully thought through policy line. Yeah, for, for what it's worth, um, Andy, as much as I, I get the logic of a nuanced AUMF that would allow for certain activities and not others, I don't, I don't think Congress goes that, that way. In 2014, Obama asked for a limited AUMF over Syria. It wasn't, I mean, it got out of the Foreign Relations Committee, but it wasn't going to get through Congress, certainly wasn't going to get through the House. So I think if there's, if it's chemical or biological, there's, the U.S. doesn't really change its position. I think if it goes nuclear uh, and the president asks for an AUMF, I think he gets one. And I think he gets one without restrictions because that will be so seen as so provocative that the U.S. will have to respond. I think, chem, I think we're a little inured to chemical weapons at this point. There've been so many episodes and as horrible as it is, there's been episodes in the past, and I think we just don't, we're unlikely to overreact to it. I think we absolutely would overreact to the use of a, a nuclear device. Carmen, I want to go back to something you said about the, uh, I don't know if you want to call it strategic ambiguity, but but Biden's kind of being hard to pin down on exactly how the U.S. will respond. He has ruled out some things, uh, but he also hasn't been very specific on exactly what he would do. And there's there's times when it seemed like he was willing to, to let the Europeans lead. It seems, a, you know, it's a little bit like the previous administration in some respects. Obviously, they're not exactly the same, but we saw this embrace of strategic ambiguity under President Trump. Biden seems to be using it as well. Is that, do you, do you see a, a straight line there or is this a different thing? I think, you know, I think it is a little bit of a straight line. And in fact, I think you could characterize the Biden administration as probably on foreign policy being more of a straight line from the previous administration than, than people expected. You know, again, I'm not a, a psychologist, but, you know, people's read on Putin is that, that, you know, he's a risk taker and, you know, and a gambler. And so one way of making it harder to calculate risk and the degree of gambling that you're making is if what you, his opponent, is going to do seems less certain to him. And I think injecting uncertainty into how he perceives what the U.S. and the West is going to do is a good idea. So, yeah, I do think it's a straight line. And I think that, you know, on foreign policy, really, there's been a lot of continuity between Trump and Biden. Scott, Andy, you guys agree? I think I agree. I and mean, maybe one one point uh, of difference in the context is the uh, really dramatic, what I've been calling a, a geostrategic uh, awakening um, happening in Europe, um, particularly in Berlin, uh, where I think the government uh, has been asleep for a number of years now. Um, and, and I think many European capitals, um, Berlin foremost, um, have really been um, shocked, truly shocked and surprised by the Russian uh, invasion in, in late February. You know, the French intelligence and German, you know, the Europeans thought it wouldn't happen, uh, that they thought Putin was bluffing. And, and to see the return of conventional war in Europe, maybe 
hard for some Americans to understand what what a mental boundary that 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 is for Europe, and, and you see that happen, you know, and then, and then to see, of course, the, uh, the 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 massacres, I mean, even beyond just the war itself, the incredibly uh, brutal and, and vicious nature uh, of how the Russian military has conducted itself has had an amazing effect on getting Europe to move, uh, on supplying weapons, on spending on their own defense. Uh, many, many of these things are things that the U.S. has uh, encouraged Europe to do, um, both during the Trump administration and before. And to be, so I agree, it is a straight line on many of these issues. The message from the Obama years to the Trump years to the Biden years on, say, NATO 2% was exactly the same. Um, but the, the difference now is the context in Europe has changed. Um, and, um, and European capitals are imagining things uh, that they thought, you know, weren't going to happen. Um, you might say they're a little bit surprised and maybe even a little bit scared. Um, and now they're motivated to spend money and do things um, that before they thought they wouldn't have to spend money on. Andy? Yeah, and sort of clearly the tone and tenor uh, is night and day different between administrations in how they present themselves to the world. But I agree, largely the policies have remained. And frankly, the, you know, Putin has done all the, all the work to galvanize Europe, right? Uh, this didn't come from our lecturing or, you know, on the, tr- on the Trump side, lecturing and trying to embarrass and cajole and, and the rest uh, versus, you know, the Biden team, which is much more, let's all do this together, hold hands and, and move forward. Putin did all this himself. Um, he did more than, than we could have done to unify NATO over the last 75 years. And then I think the same is, is in the situation with, with China. I think Xi Jinping has uh, galvanized, uh, uh, you know, opposition to his aggressive foreign policies um, and domestic policies, um, much more so than than anything that we have done or by you know, either shaming, naming and shaming or trying to get folks to come along for the ride. All right. Speaking of China, let's uh, switch to our second topic, which is uh, the way China has been handling the covid pandemic. Uh, In recent days, we've seen some amazing stuff in Shanghai, which I will remind people is a city of 25 million people. China has locked down its major commercial center over the spread of COVID. These scenes are amazing. People are yelling out their windows at night. Public health officials and police in full biohazard suits uh, are hurting people around, bullying them. People are locked down inside their apartments. There's issues of access to food and water and other things. Um, and this is all over a new, the new Omicron variant, which is not a very deadly version of COVID. Scott, this seems like a huge overreaction on, on China's part. What do you make of what we're seeing? Uh, yes, uh, I, I agree. In response to admittedly a large COVID outbreak, um, in Shanghai, uh, the Chinese Communist Party has essentially caused um, uh, a humanitarian catastrophe through a cruel and Orwellian-like lockdown of the city that just has shown no space for respect for, for the people of the city and has really been been treating them in, in, in awful and, and cruel ways. And as you pointed out, the images we're getting are horrendous. Uh, not only the, the violent treatment of, of of individuals, the the suppression of uh, of what protests we've seen breaking out, but but even also uh, incredible use of uh, of technology of of, of drones, um, you know, delivering messages um, of, of of robot dogs, you know, walking the streets 
and, 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 and yelling out messages to obey and to listen um, and to be careful what you put on social media. Uh, it's really things that um, are out of some sort of, 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 of sci-fi movie. Um, it's really been incredible to watch. Andy, how much of this is uh, related to Xi Jinping seeking this unprecedented third term in the fall at the next meeting of the People's Congress? Are local officials kind of overreacting on his behalf? Is this a, a crackdown from above? How is this involved in like the political life of, of the Chinese Communist Party? Yeah, I think this is actually very significant because I think it speaks to the core of the sort of social contract that frankly all authoritarian governments have with the with the people which is give us all the power don't ask any questions and we'll make your life you know slightly better than it otherwise would be and so now you have you have the situation where you have a question of competence right so are we successfully controlling this this epidemic in a way that is that is good for china we have situation of abuse of power are we going too far even for an authoritarian state? Uh, like you said, some of the, the pictures are just horrifying. And I, what I think is very interesting, and we've seen this a number of times in the recent, and I'd say the recent decade, where if you look at really what happened with the Soviet Union in particular, what really ends up getting them in trouble is just this pervasive, this entire society was based on, on a lie. And, and when you, when you hide the truth for so long and it, and it, you know, from from the top official all the way on down, eventually, I mean, you saw that with the Chernobyl cover up. That's why I think that uh, I think it was a Showtime uh, documentary series on Chernobyl was so fascinating because it, it got to this point that the from the engineer on the ground, the local official to the party official to, you know, the top Soviet leadership. It was all about perpetuating this lie. And that ends up hurting the country and the government and the people um, more than had they just told the truth. And I think you're seeing some of this uh, right now in Shanghai. There, there are reports that, um, for example, the, when the leadership showed up to investigate the situation, they had created a fake city on top of one of the roofs of a high-rise uh, building so they could show, look, we're checking in on the people and you know everything is, is, is fine. It was all made up. Um, and that's exactly what the Russians used to do, the Soviets. And eventually that, in my view, that has to, there has to be a price for that eventually, because you're, you're, you're only, you know, the lie only protects those in power. And eventually that even undermines their own authority and it actually hurts themselves. Armin, what, what do you think here? Is the, is the social contract between the CCP and the Chinese people rent asunder by this, this demonstration we're seeing? Well, it's definitely weakened. Um, I find have been, you know, fascinated by what's going on in China because it, it runs counter to my assumptions about human behavior. And I don't think the Chinese are genetically different from the rest of the human race, at least not to the point where uh, they would tolerate this kind of thing more than any other group of people. And, and so in some ways, I've been like relieved, I guess you could say, that the average Chinese person doesn't think that being locked up in their apartment for three to four weeks without access to food is a good idea. You know, I should have looked this up before the podcast, but, uh, you know, all of these Chinese leaders come from provinces, you know, they rise up. Was she uh, involved in Shanghai at all? Did he have a connection to Shanghai? Does anyone know off the top of their head? I'm just curious about it because Shanghai is, is such an important political center for the Chinese. So, you know, I think 
it gets wrapped up in economic performance. So the first quarter results for China came out, they were kind of okay, 4.8%, but that would have been before the big lockdown. If this thing in, in Shanghai continues, uh, most people, economists think they're not going to meet their targets. And uh, and if, if it lasts much longer, the public reaction is going to be worse. There was an episode last week where around midnight, the censors weren't paying attention on Weibo and it got flooded with anti-Chinese government rhetoric of, you know, an intensity that surprised people. So the thing about China is that there is a process. They actually have a process. They're going to meet in the fall and they're going to have to ostensibly vote to give him that third term. And because there is a process, if things get worse, I think that, you know, in my opinion, there's a, a, a serious possibility that that she will get challenged because, again, that's something that is built into the Chinese system. Unlike the Russian system, which is, you know, nobody really understands it. The Chinese system has a process that they've been engaging for some time. So and the other the other thing I, I would point out is, you know, when you're a boss or a government, you have a bank account of goodwill from the people that you are managing. And you can only draw from that bank account for so much before you, you know, you you exhaust it. And here they are, I think, making significant withdrawals in their trust bank account on the on kind of this bizarre zero COVID policy, which may not even be scientifically possible at this point. So how does this play out if there is, for example, a conflict with Taiwan? You know, are they using up some of that uh, reservoir of goodwill uh, inappropriately, at least in terms of Chinese strategic interests? So, Carmen, the uh, Fault Lines crack research staff has done a quick study and learned that Xi Jinping was the Communist Party secretary of the city of Shanghai 15 that, years ago. That was my that was niggling in my brain, but I didn't have time to, to nail it. So and she's good. <laughs> damn right. No, there's a personal vested thing, which is probably coloring his reaction. There's no doubt about it. She is personally associated with this policy. And even more so now that we know that he has Shanghai roots. Uh, Andy, Scott, what do you what do you think of the possibility Xi Jinping is in for an electoral surprise here in the fall? Uh, I certainly would not bet on it. I, I, I think I think um, uh, Xi is not going anywhere. Um, and you know, this is slightly off topic, but you know, he he has broken the mold um, in China of of a rotation of leadership, and he's broken the principle, the idea about how new leaders come to power, how power is transferred in China. I think that was one of his huge mistakes. Um, that was one of the one of the apparent strengths of the Chinese system, um, being authoritarian, but also having enough rules to decide peacefully, you know, who, who comes next, you know, a big problem that, that Russia has. And, you know, he has, um, he has broken that, um, presumably for his own ego and his own power. I think he's probably going to be leading China um, for as long as he is alive. But after that, big question mark. I'd be absolutely stunned if he goes anywhere. Well, we're discussing essentially our Communist Party internal rules, right? And who makes the Communist Party internal rules? Communist Party leadership. And so, you know, yes, since Mao, essentially, they have tried to rule by some consensus. And, and that was followed 
for the decades uh, that that followed uh, Mao immediately. And, you know, he's decided to change those rules. Uh, He's declared himself president for life. Of course, Mao was in power for 30 plus years. He's one of the world's worst mass murderers of all time, and he managed to uh, uh, stay in charge. So, you know, one of the good things about being the ones who write the rules is you can make them however you want, whatever's convenient. I'm, I'm going to come down with Carmen on this question and say that I think Xi Jinping's future is now very much in doubt and that his original sin of breaking up this system that had led to so much Chinese prosperity for the past few decades was him essentially going halfway out on the limb. This overreaction to COVID may be him going too far out on that limb and it, it breaking underneath him. And I I, for one, won't be surprised if things get a little sideways for him this fall when he thinks he's he's rolling into something that was preordained. Let's flex to the last part of the podcast where we each talk about an issue we're following that may ne- may not be on the front page. Scott, I want to go to you first. Sure. Uh, this week, I am looking at the the deepening of the U.S.-Moldova relationship. Um, you know, for our listeners, Moldova, small country in uh, southeastern Europe between Romania and Ukraine, uh, probably a population of less than 3 million. Um, but uh, since the outbreak of the Russia-Ukraine war uh, in late February, something on the order of 300 to 400,000 Ukrainians have fled uh, and found refuge in tiny Moldova. And to help Moldova cope with that, the U.S. has pledged over $100 million in aid um, in recent weeks, both Secretary of State Blinken um, and uh, USAID Administrator uh, Samantha Power um, uh, have both made separate trips to Moldova. And this week uh, here in Washington, they're hosting a, a session of the U.S.-Moldova Strategic Dialogue. So a, a small country which has struggled to reform since, um, since its post-Soviet independence. Um, but now, um, you know, in, a, in, a, in another administration in a different time, uh, Moldova may have struggled um, to, find, uh, to find a, high, a higher ranking on the priority list. Uh, definitely wouldn't have been receiving such high-level visitors. Um, but maybe one of the consequences of, of, the, uh, of the Russia-Ukraine war is some countries uh, like Moldova uh, are again becoming uh, very important for U.S. policy and are going to receive um, much more attention than they might otherwise have gotten. Fun fact, Moldova is also the home of two of my favorite provinces, Transnistria and Gagauzia, which I always thought were just terrific names for places. Okay, Carmen. So I apologize if I've used this before, but I thought I would mention this in honor of Rob not being here, and we have to talk about the border. And so uh, sure, what totally I've fair. been following for a while is this move of the Mexican drug cartels into the avocado and lime business. It's also appropriate to mention it because this is uh, Cinco de Mayo is coming up. And uh, essentially, I guess as a hedge against their drug traffic, the Mexican cartels are running very significant protection racket on avocados and limes coming into the U.S. And it's a multi-billion dollar business. And I think it's a, I don't know how serious a problem this is. It's mostly a criminal issue, but it's a less appreciated wrinkle associated with our border. 
uh, if I recall from the Godfather, the Corleone family uh, were really just a bunch of olive oil importers. At least that's what they wanted you to think. Andy. Avocados and limes are delicious. So I enjoyed that last segment. Um, yeah. So I'm going to mention a building off of, of Scott's another spring break uh, hot destination for international diplomats. And that is a little group of islands in the far-flung uh, Indian Ocean called the Solomon Islands. And this is a, a really interesting place uh, that is getting a ton of international intrigue um, and attention, um, probably more so than, you know, since maybe World War II in the Pacific. Um, so back in February, the United States announced we were going to uh, plan to build an embassy in the Solomon Islands. Um, which was highly significant. Well, then the Chinese the following month in March made a major announcement that they were, um, and so did the officials in the Solomon Islands, were developing closer economic uh, ties, which of course may, makes us nervous and gets our attention given their proximity to close allies like Australia and New Zealand. Um, and now this week happening happening later uh, this very week, uh, senior U.S. officials are uh, making the trek across the Pacific to this uh, remote group of islands, just just demonstrating the, the geopolitical um, intrigue and, and um, you know, interest that is going on between the United States, uh, the Chinese, and then all of our, our Western allies to secure some of these outposts. Because where China can't build uh, its own island, they try to find other places where maybe they could set up shop and maybe overstay their welcome a little bit. We we did cover the Solomon Islands issue uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, so uh, and one of one of the things we that. learned is there is excellent deep sea diving in the Solomon Islands. So uh, another fun fact. Well, with all that interest from the Fault Lines podcast, we need to do it clearly to examine it firsthand. I think. Let's go. Uh, all right. The issue I'm following is the very exciting news that there is a conference committee uh, that is being appointed to handle the the USICA China legislation from the Senate and the Competes Act from the House. Uh, it would appear that uh, only about 95% of the 535 members of Congress are on the conference committee, uh, which is an exciting prospect for anyone who's ever been a staffer. Uh, they don't often do conference committees. This one appears to be very, very large uh, and has a bunch of people in it who have never been on a conference committee before. So uh, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, I think it's unlikely this is going to work anytime soon and may not work at all this year. And we could end up cobbling together some sort of uh, minimal compromise between those two bills in a possible lame duck session at the end of the year. So there's your free congressional forecasting uh, from Fault Lines. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnetsec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Jesse Clauber and Cesar Muir for research assistance, and Ruth Joe for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines. <laughs>